I want to thank you again for your patience in getting in here. I know that it is not an easy thing to come in with an attitude of worship after you've been, you know, backed up in traffic. But let me say something that may change your attitude about this. I was just made aware of it this morning. J.T. Allman, who has, uh, who is an elder here, who has been going here for, you know, 12 years. Uh, congregation's only what 20 years old. Maybe 12 years. J.T. said, came in. He said, Hunter, do you realize that uh, this morning is an answer to prayer? And I said, Well, thanks, J.T. Tell me about it. He said, Eight years ago, we had a congregational meeting here. And we didn't know whether or not we were going to go on as a congregation. We were so discouraged. And so um, things, things just looked like they were falling apart. And Joe Fike stood up in that congregational meeting and says, Well, I don't know where you guys are with this, but I want to tell you, if we fold, I'm going to be here to turn the lights out. That's how committed I am to this body. And he said, Somebody spoke a prayer in that meeting. And the prayer went like this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God sent so many people to this church that they were backed up on 1792 and backed up on 427? I want you to know you weren't in the middle of a traffic jam this morning. You were in the middle of an answered prayer. God has answered that prayer. And so when you get frustrated, (laughs) get frustrated with him. No, don't. Just say, thanks, God. Now, I want to pledge to you, we will continue to, to try and figure out how to work this thing better. We need to have some Disney people out here. to <laughs> not, the, not the clowns, but the, you know, the traffic planners. They're pretty good at this stuff. But uh, thank you for your patience. I want to remind you just a word of where we are. We are on a spiritual journey for 10 years. And this year, we are talking about why God made us as individuals. And the first step was to discover that the scripture tells us that God made the world in order to make a people for himself. That they might know of his love and live out his character. And he did that by establishing and initiating covenants all down through history. And those covenants are really the elements for a personal relationship not only with God, but with each other. Those contain the elements that are necessary for personal intimacy. The first covenant, uh, after we went through those covenants, I said, let me go back through them one more time to tell you some practical ways that they can relate to your lives. The first covenant was the covenant of hope. Remember that he made with Adam, standing in the garden. There he was, just barefaced in front of God and everybody, standing in front of his sin, or standing in his sin. And God said, You know, someday there's going to come someone who's going to crush Satan's head. And that was the covenant of the the promise of hope. And when I hear Christians talk about chosen and unchosen, chosen and non-chosen, we said last week that we are to regard all unbelievers as potential family because that covenant still applies to them. They are all our potential spiritual family, and that is how we are relate to relate to people. Don't get ahead in your theology. Don't get ahead of God. We are relate to all people as potential family. Now, I want to take the second covenant this week, and it's a covenant of nature. 
And uh, this, this sermon is kind of boring, so I'll try and get through it quickly. Um, it's, it's not got as many stories as usual, but, but it is so important. There are a couple of points in here I don't want you to miss. First of all, let me read that covenant to you. I establish my covenant. This is chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. He's talking to Noah here. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant, which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Now listen to this. For all successive generations, you are still children of this covenant. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about that when I bring the cloud over the earth, and the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. God's covenant in nature is essentially this. It says to this, uh, to this to us, God controls nature toward our remembrance of his care. That's essentially what that covenant does. God controls nature to our remembrance of his care. Now, I want to tell you three things this morning that God does with nature that connects us inexorably to this world. Number one, God reveals himself through nature. Uh, I'm sure you've read many times... Uh, Psalm 19. Listen to this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now look at this next verse, because it seems to say just the opposite. Listen. There is no speech... Nor are their words, their voice is not heard. In other words, there are some people who don't understand even the revelation of the heavens. That God, the Creator, is present in His creation and is communicating Himself to us. The first chapter of the book of Romans, verse 20, says, For the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through that which He has made, so that all may understand. None are without excuse. Or none have excuse. None, none are with excuse. Because God is so clearly seen in His creation. It says in Acts chapter 14, God does not leave Himself without a witness. For the seasons and the fruitfulness of those seasons satisfies us as to who the Creator is. And in Acts chapter 17, at the Mars Hill, if you, if you turn to that, let me just... Acts chapter 17... In the Mars Hill Sermon, it is, he's, he's telling the people who don't know who God is. Starting with verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. Here's the important phrase. I want you to remember this. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands and so on and so forth. God is Lord of heavens and earth. From the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and what? The earth. He is Lord of the heavens and the earth. Therefore, God shows himself to us through his creation. Now, you can take this in a plenary sense. Anybody who has half a brain can look at the world and go, Oh, yeah, fat chance this came together by chance. 
It wasn't until the, the modern scientific era, after 1800s, that we developed the reductionist tendency to isolate science from the broader question of creation. And with that became the blindedness that can only result from tunnel vision. And so therefore, there are a few people today that cannot look at the world and see that this thing didn't come together by chance. Think about it just for a second. Some of you are insulted because uh, Darwin said we have a common ancestry with the apes. I read a book by a microbiologist, Don, uh, John Medina, who says, well, when you're a microbiologist, you take it even further down the evolutionary scale, and there's only a combination of amino acids, and, and according to that, we have a common ancestry with Windex. I mean, you talk about an insult. If you think all of this came together by chance, he said... Listen to this. As it has been worked out, there are people who actually like to think like this. I like to read it, but I can't imagine myself thinking like this. There is more of a chance that a monkey would type out on a keyboard a Shakespearean sonnet without air than there is for a combination, no matter how long, given those amino acids to come together to form as something as complicated as a human eye. Now let me spell that out further for you, because there are statisticians who, who talk about the possibilities. The possibility of a monkey sitting in front of a keyboard. Now this is a very personal illustration, because I just now, at 43 years old, am learning how to operate a computer. So I can really appreciate the gravity of this illustration. The possibility for a monkey to type out, forget the Shakespearean sonnet, type out the word monkey, six-letter word without error, is approximately 1.5 times 10 to the 17th power. That is to say that if you could get a monkey to set at a keyboard, and tap all over that keyboard, whatever, at the rate of twice per second, typing eight hours a day, five days a week, you might get that creature to type the word monkey without error in 12 billion years. In other words, 80% of what they say is the lifespan of the universe right now. A monkey is just trying to get... And all of this came together by chance. Do you realize the incredible faith that an atheist has to have in order not to believe? Carl Sagan has more faith than this whole room put together. You have to try hard not to see that a creator is responsible for our making. Not only that, but God reveals himself, not just generally, but specifically to some of us. Did you ever have the unmitigated innocence to ask God to show you something in nature? And he did it. I, I remember being six years old, going out in my backyard, Shelby, Ohio, all of my, none of my playmates were around. It was a hot August day. The wind hadn't blown in two days. It was hot. I had nobody to play with. I wandered out and there's this silver, big, huge silver maple tree and, and I just 
laid down in the grass. You can do that up north. It's soft. No fire ants. You can do it. I looked at the sky for a while and the clouds, you know, and they were just all still. Something, I have no idea what, caused me to think. I wonder if there's a God. Now, six years old, that's a pretty good question. And I said, because I didn't know any better, Hey, God, if you're there, show me something. At that instant, this mighty wind comes at that silver maple. Now, I don't know whether you remember what a silver maple is like, but it's green until the wind blows and then all the leaves turn up. And there's silver on the bottom. And blew the silver for like three seconds. And it quit. And it was still for the rest of the day. I have not had the single first doubt about the existence of God since I was six years old. That was good enough for me. Now, I could analyze that all over the place. But why do that? See? I bet if we went around this room and we said, has God ever just kind of winked at you? Just with circumstances to where you knew, not with your intellect, but with your spirit, that he was showing himself to you? I bet all kinds of folks would be raising their hand right now. See, God specifically, through nature, can show us himself and remind us of his care. That's one way in which we are related to nature. Now, here's the second important way that I want you to see. In Kuiper's book on uh, lectures on Calvinism, we were reading that this week uh, at the recommendation of Reggie, who gives me good reading material. There's a phrase that's fascinating. He says, most Christianity is so absorbed with soteriology. That is the, the doctrine of how we get saved. You know the question, how can I be saved? Questioning in the Bible. Most of us are so absorbed in soteriology that we forget about cosmology. And we try to leave it behind. Nature becomes an accessory instead of a main player Soteriology is worked out in cosmology. Now, let me tell you what I just said. It is, you already know what I just said. It's not that you're ignorant. It's just that I use all those big words and I confuse myself, so I've got to go back myself. What does it say in Genesis chapter 2, 15? It says that God made the man and he put him in the garden, right? To what? To till it. And to keep it. From the very beginning, we have been put into nature. Now today, we face, in the Christian faith, two tendencies, two pulls from other kinds of faith. The one tendency comes from a Roman Catholic understanding, a Roman Catholic doctrine called Pura Naturalia, And it says that man was really created to operate in two spheres, the world and the spiritual sphere. And in the fall of man, only the spiritual was affected. And so therefore, that's what we need to continue to work at. And if we work at it hard enough, 
this natural world we live in kind of becomes a vestige. It leads, in other words, long term to a dualism, to where the world is not as important as the spirit is. That's why in the Roman Catholic Church, the priest is holier than the layperson. And the monk is holier than the priest, see, because he's left that world behind. And the aesthetic is holier than the monk, because he's even left the world behind farther than that. So there's this vestige of theology that all of us deal with thinking, well, to be really spiritual, you've got to leave the world behind. On the other end of the theological spectrum, there is, especially in the New Age movement, a dealing with Eastern philosophy that says, no, the world is so holy that God really is identified with the world. It's pantheism. And therefore... We have all kinds of, of tugs in our culture that, that would make us uh, want to concentrate on, on uh, uh, saving the forests and the animal rights movements and so on and so forth as a matter of theology. Now, let me say this. We are not to pollute our planet. We are to keep, take care of it because God put Adam in the garden to till it and to keep it. So therefore, we are to take care of it. But this stuff that says... Well, listen, trees have as much right to live as man does. Animals are as important as people. That is Eastern philosophy. That's not Christianity. In Reformed thinking, operating within the world is so important because that's where we work out our spirituality. He is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. See? It is important because... In order to find your purpose, you need to do more than just study what your spiritual gifts are. You've got to know more about who you are and where you were planted and what goes on in the world around you than just what your spiritual gifts are. You've got to know your chemistry. You've got to know how you're dependent on your wiring. You've got to know how you were raised and what effect that has on the way you relate to people. This clinical information is important, just as clinical information, not as a worldview. We have a, we're developing a psychotherapeutic philosophy of life. And as I said last week, counseling is a good tool. It makes a lousy worldview. But the tools are important. Let me give you an example. And let me tell you why God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. And as we learn more about Scripture, we'll learn more about how we're wired. And as we learn more about how we're wired, we'll be able to operate better spiritually. There is a gal, Ph.D., California, I think, who did a study about the relationship between human sexuality and health. Have I got your attention? I thought, I thought I'd do it. Because Americans are concerned, consumed by two main concerns. One is their own health. Ninety-three percent of Americans surveyed had as their main concern for the future their physical health. That was 20% beyond any other main concern people had. By and large, everyone is consumed with a concern for their physical health. The other big, big uh, fascination uh, for this culture is sex. So she decided, why not relate the two? Let me tell you what she did. She did a study of the body's endocrine system and did a study with lovemaking according to a healthy chemical 
balance within the body. Now, I know that there are children present, so I'm going to try to clean this up as good as I can, as well as I can. But try to read what I'm saying. What she found was that a regular, consistent, love-making life was the healthiest of all existences. You know why? Number one, because there is a, an effect on our hormone level. There is an effect when there is another person involved because of pheromones that stimulate nerve reactions in the endocrine system through, believe it or not, odor. So that's why this doesn't work alone. That just a sexual experience with another... I'm trying to clean it up as good as I can. Good grief. But it requires a consistent relationship with another person. Now, listen to this. Wonder of all wonders. This person said, therefore, what would the healthiest physical relationship be between two people? Well, she said, it must be monogamy. She couldn't, she couldn't say marriage. You know, that's not what, that's a value judgment. Must be monogamy. Monogamy must be the healthiest relationship because that's when two people have consistent, intimate access to one another. What, she said, is the second healthiest relationship sexually or activity sexually? Would you like to guess? Celibacy. Why? Because you are not jerking those hormones around. You are not creating the... I'm trying to choose my, my word carefully here. Any word I give you, you can go off on fantasy, fantasy island here. So I'm trying to really choose them carefully. You are not creating an irregular pattern that makes your body compensate for irregular activity. So she was saying the second healthiest. If you can't have that monogamous, Christians would, would translate that marriage relationship, would be celibacy. Now let me tell you why I bring this up at all. You can either read about that study in the latest issue of Psychology Today, or you can read about that study in the first letter of Paul to the Church of Corinth, the seventh chapter. Let me read it to you, as a matter of fact, because it says the exact same thing. Some of you already know this chapter by heart. Because you're aware of your bodies. And you're aware of grappling with your bodies. Verse 3, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. What's that say? Consistent, regular lovemaking. Now, if you're not married, there's verse 8 for you. Look what it says. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Celibate. Those are the two choices. You can either get them out of psychology today or you can get them out of Scripture. God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. He made us to operate in a certain way. And the more we know about our bodies, the more we will know about the wonderful way He's put it into the pattern of His universe. 
There was a hymn popular at the beginning of the century. And the words of that hymn, the last stanza went like this. And let people learn who here shall meet that wisdom is with reverence crowned and science walks on humble feet to seek the God that faith hath found. Isn't that neat? You see, we are tied in with nature, and the more we learn about our world, the more we will learn about the wonderful way God made us. Now, one more point, never quit. It is so important to know that God gives us struggles in this world in order to have an effect on our spiritual life. Not so that we can escape it. Not so that we can turn our back on and say, well, praise the Lord, I don't want to face that. I'm going to run away from it. So that we can grapple with it. And there will be times that God is calling us to prayer that he gives us exactly what our prayer is. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, first three verses, Jesus and his disciples happen upon a blind man. And the disciples ask a typical question. I don't know where, whether if, when things go wrong in your life, if you ask this question as I do, but most people do. They go immediately to searching for the cause. Why is it that this man was blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? That's what Christians do. They want to know what caused it. Whose fault is this? That's not how God thinks. Jesus responded, wasn't him or his parents. He never does give them a reason for it. God doesn't look to the cause, he looks to the effect. But it is so that the glory of God may be made manifest. You see? There are times when God, as a result of the intervention of prayer, he is allowed to come and change the nature of the problem. And God calls us to grapple with our problems in nature through prayer in order that he might be made manifest. Now, there are times when the situation doesn't change so that we can. 1 Corinthians 12, 10 through 7, or 7 through 10. talks about Paul's thorn in the flesh. I was sent a thorn that Satan might buffet me, that I might not be exalted. See, there's the reason, there's the effect. And I prayed three times that it be taken away, and it wasn't. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, Paul said, I glory in my weakness. There are times when the situation doesn't change. But the prayer is answered in another way because God has used nature again toward an effect that we did not anticipate. What am I saying to you? I'm saying this. It is important that all through our lives we grapple with the garden that we've been set in. We face it seriously and we look for what God is doing in that garden. Now you can do that two ways. One way is going to be a very frustrating way. And it's the way that some teach, churches teach you, especially uh, some, some charismatic churches. They say you can either get your answer in mind and pray for it. And if you don't get it, it's because you haven't had enough faith or somebody sinning somewhere. Or there's another way. Let me teach you the other way because it's much more fruitful. And you will notice the answers of God and not just those that you've been looking for. I heard a story about a man who was buying 
all of his worldly goods through a catalog. Remember when you used to do that? Becky said that when she was growing up, they bought everything through the Sears catalog. Had everything. You know, they'd write it out the order. Well, he was doing that. At the end, at the bottom of the order page, there was a phrase. There was a question. May, if we don't have the, the goods that you have ordered, may we substitute? Well, this guy was kind of a black and white guy. He said, I know what I want. I don't want anything else. I know the price. That's all I want. So for a long time, he put no on that. And they either had it or they didn't. And if, if he got it, good. And if they didn't have it, they just said, we don't have it. One day, he got curious. So he began to put on the bottom of his order forms, yes, you may substitute. Well, the next time they didn't have one of his things, they sent him essentially the same thing that was twice the value of what he had originally ordered. Well, he thought that was pretty neat. So from then on, he kept putting yes at the bottom. If you don't have what I've ordered, you may substitute. And periodically, when they did not have what he asked for, he got something better. Could I give you a closing line right before the in Jesus' name, amen part that I think will be invaluable for you for the rest of your life. And it, will, it goes something like this. God, if you don't have what I ordered in your plan, you may substitute. Pray with me. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people who have been patient to come and praise you and to hear your word. Lord, if there's anybody in here this morning who doesn't have a personal relationship with you but really knows that it's time because you've been working on their heart, let them right now open up their heart to you and say, God, come in and live. I've been living separately from you, but I want my sins forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross, and I want to invite him into my heart. Make of my life what you want it to be. I pray in Jesus' name. And if, if they've done that, Lord, let them tell a Christian. Because you said in your word, whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord, he shall be saved. So let him tell a Christian. For the rest of us, though, that have prayed that, God, open us up through the struggles of your world to how you want to be made manifest in our lives and through our lives and to our lives. And Father, as you call us to prayer on the different struggles we have, let us remember to put that closing line. If in your plan you don't have what I've ordered, you may substitute. In Jesus' name.